My name is Kevin, and I am excited to be here with you all here in the room. I'm glad you all are joining online as well. Uh, so I am on staff at a church down in Noblesville, Indiana, and I've uh, been down there for eight years. Uh, I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky. I was born and raised there, and uh, I've got uh, a big family. Um, my wife and I have been married for 13 years. Here's a picture of our family. Whoa! Yes, those are all our children. We've got six kids, and uh, I believe they may be watching online. So, hey, kiddos. Um, so we got six children, four girls, two boys. The oldest is 10 years old. Our youngest is six months old. Uh, I haven't slept in years. Um, I like to say we're making disciples the old-fashioned way. And uh, so I'm so thankful for my family. I love my children. Uh, you know, the greatest desire of my heart, the greatest desire of my wife's heart, our number one prayer is that they would come to know the gospel love of Jesus. I want my children, I'm sure like you, we want them to know the good news that Jesus came to rescue them. Julie mentioned the story, the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, last week. If you have not gotten a copy of this, I want to encourage you to get one. It is one of our family favorites as well. And uh, in it, Sally Lloyd-Jones Lloyd uh, writes this. She says, the story, there are lots of stories in the Bible. But all the stories are telling one big story. And then I love, I love this line specifically. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. I love that. Every story in the Bible whispers the name of Jesus. Every story in the Bible points to Jesus as the rescuer. And today we're going to look at one of those stories. It's found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And if you have a Bible with you, or if you like to use one on your app, you can turn to the book of Ruth. Now, in order to fully really appreciate uh, the beauty of this story, it's important for us to understand uh, the theme of redemption. We see the theme of redemption throughout the New Testament. For example, we see it in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul writes, For he has rescued, for he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, what is redemption? Well, to understand it, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament. The Israelite culture and society back in the Old Testament was very different than our society and culture today. They lived in a patriarchal tribal society. And so your tribe was in essence your extended family, sometimes three generations of family members all together living in one tribe. And your tribe was everything to you. I mean, you shared the same land, you shared the same food and the resources as your tribe, you shared the same economic and financial status as your tribe. Even your legal standing, the systems of laws uh, were meant, that were meant to protect you were really tied to the norms of your tribe and your family. Now today, you might have good relationships with your extended family, but for the most part, you probably, you probably don't share the same household or the same bank accounts or the same food and resources as your extended family. You probably don't share the same credit cards or, uh, or the, uh, go to the grocery together or uh, share the same clothes, uh, the same closet of clothes. Because for most of us, our well-being isn't directly tied to our extended family like it was in the tribal society. Well, the Israelites' tribal society was also patriarchal. 
And this means that the patriarch or the male head of the tribe was ultimately responsible for its well-being. He was the owner of the land. He was responsible for the food and the resources. And so everyone in his family or his tribe fell under his protection and care. And this was especially true for women. When a man married a woman, the woman always joined the man's family and his tribe. She went to live with her husband's family and she came under the care and provision of her husband and her father-in-law, the patriarch. And if her husband died, her sons would be responsible for taking care of her. Now, what does all this have to do with redemption? Well, redemption was a tribal law that required the patriarch of the family to purchase and restore someone who lost their place in the family. In her book, Epic of Eden, author Sandra Richter explains it this way. She says, the tribal law of redemption had to do with the patriarch rescuing a family member who, due to crippling life circumstances, such as death or extreme poverty, had lost their kinship or their place in the family. She goes on to write this. Redemption was the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security within the kinship circle. Okay, now with a basic understanding of biblical redemption, we can better appreciate this story of Ruth we're going to read. Because in it, redemption, and the word for redemption, is mentioned 13 times in just four chapters. The story of Ruth is a story of redemption. Now, before we dive in, I want to pause and pray. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for your word, and I'm so thankful for this story in Ruth and the beautiful picture that it gives us. God, I just ask as we open up your word that it would be living and active. God, that you would pour out your spirit on us as a church family here this morning. And you would open our eyes and help us to see how glorious of a father you are. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Let's dive in. You can follow along with me as I read, if you'd like. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were those people from Bethlehem in Judah. Isn't some of the, isn't the most difficult part about the Old Testament is reading some of these names and words? They went to Moab, and they lived there. So they, they moved to Moab. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and husband. Now, this is the opening scene of a movie. Then you quickly come to realize that one of the main characters is a woman named Naomi, and she is in a pretty hopeless situation. That's what this movie, this story, is going to be about. The story starts out with the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. When the judges ruled refers to a period of time in God's people, the Israelites, had turned their back on God. And instead of worshiping the one true God, they were worshiping false gods. And in this period, there's a family living in Bethlehem, the same Bethlehem where Jesus will be born years later. And you have the husband, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. But then a famine strikes the land. And because of the famine... 
Elimelech decides to take his family and he leaves his land in Bethlehem and moves about 50, 50 miles away to a neighbor, neighboring town, neighboring country called Moab. Now Moab was known as a depraved nation full of godless people. And so now this family is going to be foreigners living in a foreign land. And sometime after they move to Moab, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is now a widow, right? Now this will obviously be heartbreaking for Naomi. But as one author points out, it's not disastrous because Naomi still has two sons. And we're told that both of her sons get married. And they marry two Moabite women, one named Orpah, one Ruth. And so even though her husband is gone, Naomi still has the care and the protection of her sons. But after 10 years, we're told, both of her sons die. And so now she's in a foreign land with no husband and no sons. This is bad news. She and her daughters-in-laws are pretty hopeless. They're in a hopeless situation. I don't know where you are in your life right now or in your relationship with God, but maybe you can relate. Maybe like Naomi and Ruth, life is not quite going the way you had hoped. And that life's not going the way you had planned. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're not sure how you're going to provide and take care of yourself or to take care of your family. Maybe you're not sure what the future holds. You can't see the path ahead. And that sense of uncertainty, that sense of insecurity is leaving you feeling really weak and really powerless. And you feel helpless and you feel vulnerable. And maybe the suffering that's come into your life has caused you to ask the question, where's God in this? Why would God allow this into my life? If you're in a season of darkness today, I want to encourage you, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope in God. See, this opening scene is just the black backdrop to the beauty that is coming. If you go to the jewelry store to purchase a diamond, how does the jeweler present you or show you the diamond? They don't just hand it to you, do they? No, they place it on a piece of black cloth or a black pad. And why do they do that? Because the beauty and the brilliance of the diamond shines brightest against the black backdrop. That black cloth highlights or magnifies the diamond. And the opening scene we've just read is kind of like the black cloth. It's the black backdrop. But a diamond's coming. So let's check out the next scene. Chapter 1, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to re return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and sat out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So the Lord has come to the aid of the Israelites. The famine has ended. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law are going to go back to Judah, going to go back to Bethlehem. But then Naomi has this realization. Look at verse 8. Then Naomi said to her, her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest. We're going to come back to that. Hang on to that word rest. In the home of another husband. 
Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept out loud. What's happening here? Well, remember that the daughters-in-law are Moabite women. They've never been to the land of Judah. And so in Bethlehem, they're going to be viewed as foreigners, as outcasts. And with no husbands to protect them or provide for them, no father to protect or provide for them, these two women are going to be extremely vulnerable. And so Naomi says, listen, on second thought, there's really nothing for you in Bethlehem, so go back to your mother's home and find another husband for yourself. Maybe they can find new husbands who will be able to provide a secure future for them. They'll be able to have rest and security. So they both agree, and they say goodbye. But if you keep reading, in the next few verses... We're told that one daughter-in-law, Orpah, decides to take Naomi's advice, and she stays. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, changes her mind. Ruth decides that she wants to go with Naomi. And Naomi tries to talk her out of it, but Ruth refuses. Here's what she says in verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And then in probably what is the most well-known verse of this story, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Again, if this is a movie we're watching, we've just seen a powerful and really emotional scene. Ruth, the daughter-in-law, embraces Naomi, her mother-in-law, and says, I'm committed to you. I'm going with you. I think to kind of better grasp this, it would help to put it in a little bit of our context today. So I want you to imagine that Naomi is from Africa. And 20 years ago, she came to live here in the United States with her husband and two sons. And her two African sons married two American women. But unfortunately, her husband and her sons have died. And she decides it's time to move back to Africa where she's originally from. She's been gone for 20 years. But she's hoping that one of her old friends or family members will help take care of her. So she tells her two American daughters-in-law, hey, stay here remarry and make a life for yourself here in America. You're Americans. There's nothing for you in Africa. Orpah takes her advice and she decides to do that. But Ruth, she decides she's not leaving Naomi's side. She's going with Naomi. Now keep in mind, Ruth is an American. She only knows America, but she's going to leave and go with Naomi in Africa to a land she's never been, to a culture is completely foreign to her. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? But there's even more going on here. There's something spiritual happening. Remember, the daughter-in-law Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites were a depraved nation, a godless people. And so when Ruth says to her mother-in-law Naomi, your people will be my people and your God my God, when she says that, what's happening is, in essence, this is Ruth's salvation. This is her conversion. She's saying, I'm putting my hope and my faith in your God, Naomi, in the God of the Israelites. She now wants to follow the God of the Israelites. And so Naomi and Ruth are returning to the land of Judah to Bethlehem. But what they're really doing is they're turning back to God. They're entrusting themselves to God's care and God's provision. And this gives us this beautiful picture of repentance and faith. Okay, so they start making this journey back to Bethlehem. And chapter 2 begins like this. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Naomi has a relative 
on her husband's side, right? In the patriarchal family, in the patriarchal tribe, and his name is Boaz. This is, if you're watching this movie, when you hear this, when you see this scene, this is the first glimmer of hope that enters the movie. And hope's name is Boaz. If you keep reading in the next several verses, Ruth goes to look for some food. Now she's in Bethlehem, and it's harvest time. And during harvest times, there was a practice where someone would, uh, with no means or very little means of providing themselves, they would be allowed to come pick up leftover grain that wasn't picked up by the workers. It was known as gleaning. Now, gleaning didn't provide a lot of food, but typically it was better than nothing. There's an organization in central Indiana called Gleaners, and their mission is to feed the hungry and provide for those who don't have a lot of means. This concept came right from here in the Old Testament. And so Ruth goes out to glean in the fields looking for some food for her and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it just so happens, coincidentally, that the field she chooses to glean in is Boaz's field. Boaz comes out to visit his workers in his field and he notices Ruth. Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 5. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. So Boaz notices Ruth and he wants to know who she is. Where did she come from? And notice the guy responds by saying, she's the Moabite from Moab. Remember, she's the American in Africa, right? She's the foreigner from the depraved nation. She's the godless one with a shameful reputation. But then he tells Boaz, man, she's been working really hard though in the fields. And so Boaz decides to show her favor. He goes to Ruth and tells her, stay here in my field. I'll make sure the men treat you kindly. And when you're thirsty, come help yourself to some water and get something to drink. Well, Ruth is overwhelmed by Boaz's kindness. And she asks, what have I done to deserve this? I'm only a foreigner, she tells him. Boaz says, yes, I know. I've heard that you, come over, you came over with your mother-in-law, Naomi. I know that your husband died. I know that you left your home to come live here among strangers. And then later in the day, at mealtime, Boaz calls her over and says, come, help yourself to some food and wine. And we're told she ate all she wanted and she had more left over. And then she went back out to the fields to work some. And Boaz told his workers, hey, intentionally make sure you drop plenty of grain for her. Here we get a glimpse into Boaz's heart and in his character. See, as an outcast, Ruth would have been lower than a servant. And yet here's Boaz, this man of great standing, this owner of this field, lowering himself, stooping down to serve her. He is gracious with her, and he does it all at his own expense. He's not worried about what it will cost him, and he does it all at the risk of his own reputation. Do you hear the name of Jesus being whispered? Well, when Ruth finished working that evening, she went home with an entire basket filled plus leftovers. The term the author uses tells us that she went home with about 40 pounds of grain, which was about two weeks worth of wages she got in one day thanks to Boaz's generosity. When she got home, Naomi's jaw hits the floor. Here's what Naomi asked Ruth. She says this. Her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She's looking at all the food that she brought in. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. 
Lord, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Do you hear the excitement in Naomi's voice? She went for, she's gone from hopelessness, and now there's this sense of hope she has. And the moment she hears Boaz's name, she rejoices and praises God. And I want to pause right here, because I want to point something out that's really important. When Naomi says, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead, she's talking about God, not Boaz. One translation reads, the Lord is still being kind to those who are living and those who are dead. Eugene Peterson in the message reads, writes, God hasn't quite walked out on us after all. He still loves us in bad times as well as good. I think we've all experienced that when life is hard, when there is pain and suffering in, the, in your circumstances, when you, when you look at the circumstances of your life and you feel hopeless, isn't it easy to doubt God's love? Isn't it easy to doubt his care? Well, Naomi and Ruth were in a hopeless situation. What made it hopeless? The reality was they, they didn't have anyone to care for them. They had no one to provide for them, no one to protect them. Without a, without a father and without a husband, they were alone and hopeless. And yet, the minute Ruth hears of Boaz, she realizes that God has come to her rescue, that God, in his loving kindness, has sent someone who will care for them and provide for them and protect them. Do you hear the whisper? Okay, so what happens next? Well, Ruth keeps going back to work in Boaz's fields. If you keep reading over the next couple of chapters, she works until the end of the harvest, which was typically about six to seven weeks long. And then in chapter three, Naomi decides it's time to take some action. Basically, Naomi's going to kind of play matchmaker, all right? She gives Ruth some instructions. She tells Ruth to put on some perfume and some nice clothes and go to Boaz in secret when others aren't watching and let him know that you'd like him to marry you. Let him know that you want him to redeem you. And so that's what Ruth does. And Boaz is delighted. He's honored that she would ask him. And he agrees to marry her. But there's one problem. There's another man in the family, in the patriarchal tribe, who is legally in line before Boaz. And he gets to choose first whether or not he wants Naomi and Ruth and the land and this family. And so Boaz goes to this man. And here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite. He's no dummy. He knows what he's doing here. The dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz gives his, this guy the, his chance to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And he reminds the guy, oh, by the way, Ruth is a Moabite. And this guy, this guy, here's what he says. As this gar, as the, at this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it. Because I might endanger my own estate, you redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Boaz gives this guy a chance, but he rejects. He rejects Ruth and Naomi. Why? Well, because Ruth was a Moabite. She was unworthy. He didn't want to endanger his estate, or he didn't want to jeopardize his estate. The word literally means to corrupt or pollute. 
See, in his eyes, marrying Ruth, the Moabite woman, would pollute his name, his reputation. He just couldn't associate himself with a woman who has that kind of reputation. And so what does Boaz do? Oh, he steps in. He gets the job done, and he marries Ruth, and he redeems her and Naomi. And here's where the diamond in this story is placed on the black cloth. The diamond is Boaz and his love. Boaz rescued Ruth from the darkness of Moab. Boaz gave Ruth, the foreigner, a secure place in his family. Boaz will now provide and protect and care for her and Naomi. Boaz was gracious with Ruth. He didn't deserve, she didn't deserve his kindness and generosity. Boaz does it all at his own expense, at the risk of his own reputation. And what started out as a dark and pretty hopeless situation turned into this beautiful story of rescue and redemption. And Ruth and Boaz eventually become the great-grandparents of King David. And when you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you will see the names Ruth and Boaz. See, it was through Boaz and his line that the ultimate redeemer would come. Folks, this story is the gospel story. It's the story of Jesus and his love for you and me. Jesus is the better Boaz, and we are Naomi. We are Ruth. We are the Moabites. We are the godless people. We're the foreigners and the outcasts. We're the ones with the shameful reputation, unworthy of God's kindness and his generosity. And yet the good news of the gospel is this, that God lavished his riches of, the riches of his grace on us. Here's what Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Just as Boaz chose Ruth and Naomi, Jesus Christ chose you. Do you know that? I have this saying I like to do with my kids, depending on which one I say it to. I say I'm saying it to my eight-year-old daughter. I say, you know, if I lined up all the eight-year-old little girls in the whole world, I'd choose you. Do you know that Jesus chose you? He said, I want you. I want you to be with me. He goes on and writes, In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. You and I didn't deserve to be chosen any more than Ruth deserved to be chosen by Boaz. And yet Jesus, because of his glorious grace, the Father has chosen us. Verse seven says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. You know, my rescue story is that 20 years ago, 2001, I was 24 years old and I was lost and searching for truth. And God sent five people to my life to point me to Jesus. And that fall, I gave my life to Christ and later that winter, I was baptized into Christ and I started following Jesus. I received the forgiveness of his sins. And God's done an amazing work over my life, in my life over the last 20 years. But over the last couple of years, I kind of feel like I've been re-rescued. Let me tell you why. See, for years, I understood that God had, been, God had forgiven me, that he had forgiven all my sins, he had paid for my debt. But for whatever reason, I failed to grasp that's only half of the gospel. That's only half the good news. 
The other half is that all of the righteousness and riches of Christ has been credited to our account. That he's lavished the riches of his grace on us. I like to think of it like this. Imagine you uh, own a home, okay? Most of us don't own a home. Most of us own a mortgage. Can I get an amen? And so let's say your mortgage, let's say you owe $150,000 on your mortgage. Well, the gospel says that in Christ, what Jesus has done for us is he's paid your debt. And so he takes that $150,000 debt and he wipes it clean. You don't owe that anymore. I mean, can you imagine waking up one day and someone saying, hey, I just paid off your mortgage. You no longer owe $150,000. Well, that, that would change things, wouldn't it? That'd be awesome. That'd be pretty incredible. That'd be life-giving. It'd be a, a great blessing. But the reality is, you probably have to keep working, right? I mean, you just saved yourself maybe $1,000 a month in a payment or something like that. That's probably not enough to just quit your job. So you'd have to keep working. You'd have to keep earning. And for years, I understood that that's what the gospel was. That I had received the forgiveness of sins. I didn't realize it, though. I was operating as though my account was at zero. And here's what that meant. That meant every day I was trying to add worth and value to my account. And if you've ever wrestled with this before, you realize that's an exhausting way to live. And by the way, that's only the half of the gospel. That's not Christianity. The gospel says this. Not only did your account get taken to zero, but that God took $15 million and credited it to your account. Now think about how this is different. Imagine you wake up and not only has your debt been paid, but someone has credited 15, you got $15 million sitting in your checking account. That'd be incredible, right? What would you do? I can tell what most of us would do on day one. We quit our jobs. We quit our jobs. Why? Because we had just received financial security. We were now secure. Our future financially was now secure. And we could now rest. We don't have to work or earn it anymore. Do you understand that in the gospel all of the righteousness of Christ and all of the riches of Christ have been credited to your account. And you know what that means? It means you can rest. It means your future is secure. It means God doesn't love you or accept you based on anything that you've done, but based on what he's done for you. And it means you don't have to, you can quit working so hard to earn value and worth. You can quit trying to earn righteousness with your life. And it liberates you. It frees you. Because if you've been given all the righteousness and the riches of Christ, if, that, if he's met every need you have forever, then what do you do? You're free to serve. Then you get to just worship God with thanksgiving and praise, and you get to serve God and those around you. Isn't that good? That is good news. And listen, it's such good news. It's so hard for us to grasp that Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, when you continue there, he prays. And here's what he prays. He prays this prayer. For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, for this reason, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the riches of, 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 uh, of God's grace has been lavished on you, because of that, I, I keep praying for you. He says, verse 16, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then verse 17 is this. Listen to this prayer. I don't know if you've ever prayed this prayer before. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this prayer before, but I want to encourage you today. Make this the number one prayer you pray in your life. And here it is. 
Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He goes on, he says, I pray, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, your story and my story is Ruth's story. And that just as Ruth was given a place and security and rest and was adopted in a family and is now under Boaz's care and now she has all of the riches of Boaz, you and I have all of the riches of Christ and we are under our Father's care and he's got a room prepared for us and our future is secure and we can rest. But that is so hard for us to understand that Paul says, you're gonna need God's help to understand this. So pray that God would open up your eyes so that you can see and know and understand that God is your father. He's a glorious father and he's lavished the riches of his grace on you. Parents, this is a fantastic prayer for you to pray for your children. Pray Ephesians chapter one, verse 17 and 18 for your kids. Pray it for yourself. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter three and here's what he says. He says in Ephesians chapter three, I pray that you'd have the power to grasp the love of Christ. The love of Christ, the gospel love of Jesus is so massive, so big, it takes the power of God to grasp the love of God. So pray. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never confessed your sins Maybe you've never received the righteousness of Christ. Can I encourage you to be like Ruth? Be like Ruth. Turn back to God in faith. And like Ruth, make it known to Jesus that you want him to redeem you. And in faith, receive the redemption of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for the good news that in Christ, our sins are not only forgiven, but you've given us complete and total righteousness in Christ, that you've credited all the righteousness and riches of Christ to our account. Lord, that is hard for us to wrap our minds around. I trust that's why Paul prayed what he did in Ephesians 1. And so I'm just gonna pray that right now. Father, I just ask you, would you pour out your spirit on this church family. Would you help those of us who are sitting here listening this morning, would you help us to see? Would you open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see you're a glorious Father and you have lavished the riches of your grace on us, God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.